So we're continuing on in Acts 19. If you've been journeying with us, you know that we've been progressing through the book of Acts uh, for quite a while now. Um, Acts is written by one of the early disciples, Luke, and it's an account of how Jesus used the early disciples in the Roman Empire after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And at this point in the book of Acts, kind of as we head to the last part of the book of Acts. It's going to take us a while to progress through this, but we will finish this series by uh, December, by Christmas time. Um, You're going to see that there are really detailed accounts from here on out of the opposition that the early disciples face. And on one hand, they've been receiving opposition all along. That's not new. That's been happening all throughout the book of Acts. But these are maybe some of the most detailed accounts. And it's easy to gloss over some of these details to think, do we really have to know about all of these court cases and all of these appearances before uh, Roman magistrates and and all of the drama that surrounded the persecution of the early Christians? Um, But really, I think Luke intends for us to see some of the dynamics of the opposition that we face on mission. Listen, if you are on mission with Jesus, how many of you can testify to this? If you are on mission with Jesus, you will face opposition, amen? Um, Really, if you're just following Jesus, you will face opposition, right, to some degree or another. And so Luke spells it out for us. He tells us some of what we might expect, and so it's helpful. Now, today, uh, the Apostle Paul um, finds is still in the ancient city of Ephesus. Um, last week we were talking about him being in Ephesus as well. Many of these ancient cities um, were filled with idol worship, um, the worship of all kinds of goddesses and gods. Um, but most of the cities were known in particular for a certain deity that the city was dedicated to or that they worshipped. In the city of Ephesus, um, the goddess that they are known for worshipping, where her main temple sits, was the goddess Artemis. And we're going to be talking a little bit about her. Um, But really, I think some of the details that are presented here um, in Acts 19 are meant to give us a clear picture into the dynamics of idolatry. And that's important for us because idolatry is a very basic human sin. And it's very basic in the human experience. I, I would suggest that really every individual in this room or elsewhere, has participated in idolatry to some degree, even if you've never thought of it that way. And certainly whole societies have participated in idolatry throughout history. Now you might be thinking, wait a second, how have I participated in idolatry? I've never bowed down and worshipped a statue, right, like they did in Ephesus. But here's what a very basic definition of idolatry is. It's taking something that God created and worshipping it instead of him, right? Right? Taking something that God gave and worshiping it instead of him, or more particularly, as we're going to talk about this morning, finding our meaning in that created thing instead of our meaning and our identity in the creator, right? Because we worship that which gives us meaning, you know, ultimate meaning, right? And so in that way, you may have never bowed down to a statue, but I bet you have Um, ascribed too much value to something that God created, right? And found your meaning in it instead of God himself. Now, this makes idolatry a very tricky thing because it means 
that even really good things can become idols, right? I want you to notice in this story that there's this silversmith who makes these little uh, figurines of the goddess Artemis. Silver, in and of itself, is a good thing, right? God created it. There's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with silver. But when we look to it for meaning or figurines that are made out of it for meaning, right, then it becomes an idol. The materials that were made to fashion Artemis's temple, which was famous in the Roman Empire for its beauty and its bigness, those materials, who created those raw materials? God. In and of themselves, those materials are good, but when they are used... Um, in the wrong way, when we find our identity and meaning in them, then that's where they become idols, right? So this means in our lives, all kinds of good things um, can become the object of our idolatrous worship, right? Um, Some obvious ones, sex and money, in and of themselves are not bad things. They can be very good things, But when they become the source of our meaning, the source of our identity, when they um, become the object of our worship, then we are in the territory of idolatry, right? And this means that even immaterial things, good things, our own families, relationships that mean a lot to us, our own kids, get this, even ministry and mission itself, things that are in and of themselves good, given to us by God to bless us, these things can become idolatrous to us if they don't have their proper place, right? We're gonna see how this works in the ancient city of Ephesus. So let's begin reading in Acts 19, verse 23. It's gonna be on the screen behind me or you can follow along on your device or if you have a Bible with you. Acts 19, verse 23. It says, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. By the way, ancient cities like Ephesus had these giant theaters, these giant gathering places, really amphitheaters, outdoor amphitheaters. Archaeologists tell us that this amphitheater sat conservatively as much as 20,000 people. So the whole city is in an uproar, and now there's 20,000 people rushing in here, shouting, and all of this confusion is ensuing. Um, Verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. 
The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So it ends up being a good outcome for the early disciples because a city clerk gets the attention of the crowd and gets them to calm down and disperse. Um, But I think there's some really interesting information in this passage about the dynamics of idolatry, about how it works. I think we're going to see some things Um, in our own hearts in this, but also what it means to be a family on mission. So just really quickly, just want to point out, I could point out so much from this passage, so many details, we're just not going to have time this morning. Um, But I just want to point out to three observations about idolatry from this passage. Idols give us false meaning, idols blind us, and idols betray us. So first of all, idols give us false meaning. Remember that idols are often things that are made out of uh, materials or relationships or experiences that aren't bad in of themselves, but we end up looking to them for meaning. If you've spent any time with us here at this church, you know that we talk about often some of the basic needs that humans have that I would argue that God has created us to have uh, mainly safety and acceptance and significance, And there's always a temptation for us to find these things, safety, acceptance, and significance. And wherever we find them, or think we found them, um, we want to let that thing, or that experience, or that relationship, or in this case, that goddess, um, give us meaning, right? So look at how this happens for the Ephesians. First of all, They find safety. This whole city finds safety in Artemis and her temple. As a matter of fact, this was the character quality that she was most known for, for keeping people safe. Um, I meant to throw up a picture of her statue. Archaeologists have undercovered uh, statues of her. Um, But she's covered in these... um, appendages that surround her body. And there's some disagreement and scholarship about what these are. Some think it's breasts. Some think it's bull testicles. Weird. Some think, I, don't, I didn't even read any more on that. Some think it's fruit. All right, I'm going to go with the fruit. Out of those three, I'm going to say it's fruit. All right. But listen, all three in their own ways have to do with themes of nurturing, of safety, um, of settling. This city saw Artemis as their mother. 
Listen, some of these concepts in and of themselves, you have to understand, are not bad. These are things that the people of Ephesus wanted. These are things that we want as well, to be honest, right? As a matter of fact, this concept of safety was so well known uh, surrounding Artemis that her temple was a place where guilty criminals could run and they would receive mercy. Um, If they made their way, even if they had committed a crime and they were going to be prosecuted in the courts, if they could make their way to Ephesus and make their way into the temple, there, there would be priests and priestesses who would receive them and show them mercy and protect them because this was the character quality of Artemis, right? Look at how Ephesus finds acceptance in her, especially with each other. Do you notice that this isn't just about personal devotion to this goddess? This is a group experience. These people can't imagine being Ephesian without Artemis, right? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They keep saying over and over and over again. There's a group dynamic to their worship of her that gives them a place, that makes them feel like they belong, right? Or significance. Notice how the city clerk says, did you notice that her, the city clerk says that her image fell from heaven? Every city believed that they were significant because they had been entrusted with one of these deities. So they are looking for significance in this person as well, right? In this goddess. Um, and so they try to find their meaning in her, right? Now, Look at how that blinds them, though. Because this is the nature of idolatry. Wherever there's idolatry, it connects itself to the everyday aspects of our lives. All right, so Demetrius, this silversmith, you have to understand, he's basically part of a union, to put it in our language. He's part of this, like, craftsman guild. Not quite a union, but he, he you know... Uh, Roles with similar craftsmen, right? And their economic sustainability is all tied into um, producing these shrines made out of silver, right? Producing these figurines that people could buy. As a matter of fact, it was a lot deeper than that in Ephesus. These temples were the banks of the city. It is where people kept their riches. It is where people kept their wealth. And so the whole economy of Ephesus is wrapped up in this idol. And this is always how idolatry is. It connects itself to the everyday aspects of our lives so that the people who worship that idol can't even see it. As a matter of fact, this is a principle of idolatry. We tend to see the idols that we don't worship clearer, right? This seems so obvious to us because we don't have a temple in the middle of our city with a statue in it that we worship, right? But you have to understand, the people of Ephesus can't imagine life any other way. They can't imagine life with any other kind of system. And this might be the deepest, gravest thing I say all morning. Whatever idols we are holding on to right now, we probably don't even know they exist. They're so wrapped into our way of thinking, our way of life, that it's hard for us to see them. I think it's interesting that when the crowd gets worked up and they come into the theater, it says that they shout for two hours and most of them don't even know why they're there, right? 
The crowd dynamic is so, it's just like, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Yes, the next person says it. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The next person says it. Yes, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's like they just can't imagine it any other way. Friends, whatever our idols are as individuals or as a group, they're so embedded in our way of thinking, our way of life, that it's very hard to see them. They blind us, but then ultimately, idols always betray us. Do you notice the irony in this passage? Any ancient reader reading this story would have noticed it right away. Did you see it? Artemis is known for what? Safety. Particularly for who? The guilty. Then how is it that in her name, innocent men, who have neither blasphemed her or robbed her temple, are being dragged into a theater in her name, with a mob about to lynch these guys? How is it that a goddess known and worshipped for her safety is now the source of all of this danger, particularly an unjust danger? But this is what happens with idols. When the good news of Jesus presses up against them, they begin to reveal themselves for what they really are, and we begin to see their bankruptcy. And many of you know in this room what it's like to try to find your identity from your family and to find that that has limits, right? Many of you know what it's like to try to find your meaning from your job and to find that that betrayed you. Many of you know what it's like to try the religious route, right? To try to, to, try to find meaning just in religion or doing religious things and to find that it still left you empty. Many of you know what it's like to try to find your meaning and your significance in ministry by helping other people, by getting on mission, only to find that nobody thanks you ever, right? And so you feel like you can't get your significance from it. In one form or fashion, all of these idols betray us in the end, right? Are you tracking with me? All right, now I want you to see this. At some point in the mayhem of all of this, um, Paul wants to go address the crowd. This is just like Paul. Oh, just let me talk to them. You know, 20,000 raving lunatics. You know, let me just go out and talk to them. We'll work it out, <laughs> right? He wants to go out. Um, and probably it's because he sees an opportunity. He sees in the midst of this craziness an opportunity to present the good news of Jesus to this city that has transformed his life. And do you notice that his own friends... Other followers of Jesus disagree with him vehemently on this. Now, this is going to be a theme in the rest of the book of Acts. Paul is going to want to take risks, and some of the people who are on mission with him are not going to want him to take those risks. Now, these tensions get interpreted in all different kinds of ways in the book of Acts, and this is kind of a bonus. It's not even what I'm preaching on this morning, but let me just point this out to you, that these are the kinds of disagreements that families on mission have. And I appreciate this in this passage. See, when Christians aren't on mission, they argue about stupid things. Right? When, when Christians aren't on mission, they argue about dumb things. But guess what? When they're on mission, they still have disagreements. You should know this. 
When they're on mission, they still see things differently. It's just that they're disagreeing over substantive things that matter. I appreciate this disagreement because they're all on mission together, but some of them are, some of them are like, I'm trying to imagine this conversation. Some of, them, some of them are like, Paul, this isn't even an opportunity. What are you talking about? Are you going to be able to quiet the crowd? Are you going to be able to get their attention? Paul thinks he can go out and do it, right? He's like, no, I think, you know, I can quiet the crowd. I think I can get their attention. I think I can talk to them. It's okay for us to have disagreements about mission, right? It's okay for us to have disagreements about how to reach people. It's okay for us to have disagreements about how to serve the poor. Not if, right? But how to serve the poor. It's okay for us to have disagreements about how to be a reconciled people across lines of race and class. It's okay for us to have hard discussions as a family on mission. But this family is still on mission, right? In the midst of, they're in it together. Um, I'd notice that because that's what's happening here at our church. I love it. It's not that we agree on everything. I don't know why I keep hitting Steve today. It's not that we, it's not that we agree on everything, right? But the question of if we're on mission or not, that's been settled, amen? Now, there's no question, right? Uh, we are a family on mission. Now, it does leave me asking, though, what would Paul have told this crowd? Let's say he went out and they didn't kill him, and he did get their attention, then what would he have told them? Well, I don't know that we know completely, but we can make some guesses because Paul found himself in some similar situations, even in the book of Acts, and really his message was very uh, simple, and there's some similarities to it across cities, but he was always finding himself in these cities that were dedicated to a false god, always finding himself in these cities filled with idolatry, and he would hold out some truths to them. And here's what I suggest. If I were to imagine, what is it that Paul would actually say to this crowd? Here's what I think it is. I have another slide, Julia. First of all, that Jesus reveals to us our real meaning. This is just like a a very basic teaching of Paul and the other early disciples, that the only person uniquely qualified to say what your life means is the person who created you. That he's the only one, by virtue of him being your source, he is the only one uniquely qualified to tell you what your life means. See, our tendency is always, at best, to look at someone that is equal to us in the creation, meaning another person for our meaning, or at worst, to look, actually look at something that is actually worth less than us for our meaning. Right? So we have a tendency to look to other people for our meaning, but the problem is they were created too. The problem is they need interpretation too. The problem is they need someone to tell them what their lives mean too. So they're not a good source as a matter of fact, what they'll do, as many of you know, many times, is project their own questions and insecurities onto your life and make you dance the dance that they need you to dance so that they feel better about their meaning. Have any of you been there? That's true, right? That's what happens when we try to find our meaning only in the horizontal, right? But many times we do even worse things. For instance, we try to find our meaning in money, and the significance and acceptance and security that it promises us. But in that case, we are actually looking to something that is infinitely worth less than us for our meaning. Wow. It doesn't matter the money amount. It is infinitely worth less than you, right? There is no dollar amount that could ever be put on your worth 
as a human being. That's some of what it means to be created in the image of God. So how could we ever look at dollars and all the things that surround dollars for meaning? They're worth less than us. We actually provide meaning to the money, not the other way around. You see how that works? That, it doesn't mean anything unless we give it meaning, right? But our tendency is to look to things that are below us. You know, friends, when I first started ministry, I don't have too much time to share this, but I just want to share from my heart. When I first started ministry, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this at the beginning. Um, But there were holes in my life. I think we all have them. And as we come into, you know, adulthood, we become aware of them and able to articulate them to some degree. But there were holes in my life of security and acceptance and significance. And I'd been raised in the church, and for me, I often found affirmation in the church. And that's a good thing. That's not bad. But remember, idolatry is often made of good things, right? So I found affirmation in the church. It was a place I could predictably go and get complimented. It was a place I could predictably go and people say, Joel, your life has meaning. And that's not bad. But what happened then is I went into ministry trying to find my meaning from ministry. And some of you have done similar things in your own life, tried to find meaning from a cause or tried meaning from helping other people. And you know what I found? Most of the people I serve do not have the emotional capacity, the time capacity to feed meaning into my life, right? As a matter of fact, it's an unfair burden to put on them. It's not love. I'm serving them but trying to extract something from them that I need. You see how it's not love. So God had to dismember that in me. And Elena, you really, I don't know where you are. What up? (laughs) Elena really preached my sermon this morning. Because there's nothing wrong with gymnastics. It's just a poor source of identity. And you're, you're realizing that. So young, it's amazing. There's nothing wrong with ministry. It just has its limits with identity. There's nothing wrong with the causes of justice that you've been called to. It just has its limits with identity. There's nothing wrong with being close to your family. It just has its limits in being able to form identity in you. Do you see what I'm saying? So God has to, in the end, it's Jesus that has to reveal to us our real meaning. The truth is, as we come into the light of his presence, we get a clear revelation of who he is. But as we get to know who he is, we also get to know who we are. It's a beautiful thing. We begin to see who we are. And then in that place, Jesus gives us sight, especially where idols gave us blindness. And this is straight up miraculous because there have been idols in my life that one minute I did not even know they existed. They were so intertwined with how I viewed life. I didn't even know they were there. And then in a moment, all of a sudden, it's like Jesus gives me sight, right? I'm gonna have to wrap up, but I just wanna share this quick story with you. Some of you have heard it. I can't remember if I said it in a sermon, so if I'm repeating myself, show me grace, all right? Okay, so listen, uh, Not that long ago, one of my mentors said to me, you know, Joel, you have this thing where you always want to win. And my, um, I didn't like that comment. You know what I mean? Because I was like, no, no, you know what I mean? That's not me. You know, it's not how I view myself. Um, They said, you always want to be the best at everything. I was like, I don't think that's true. You know what I mean? I don't think so. You know, I felt something bristle in me. But if you learn to pay attention to those bristles and not get offended, sometimes that's where God's speaking, right? So there's something like, 
you know, something inside of me that I didn't want to hear. And then I run into an old friend from high school who I had not seen in forever. And in my life, I get along with most people. So a lot of that's just personality. I just get along with most people. But this guy, I categorically did not like in high school, all right? And I just didn't like him. I thought it was annoying, whatever. Anyway, I met him. I hadn't seen him for a long time, right? And this is what he says to me. He goes, wow, you were competitive in high school. So now there's two comments like this coming my way. I'm like, competitive? That's not me. As a matter of fact, get this. This is the severity of the blindness of idolatry. It was a thing I would say to people. I'm not competitive at all. I would often say this to people. I'm not competitive. I'm not competitive at all. Let me tell you, one day, you know, sometimes I cycle. I was riding my bicycle up to the church, and all of a sudden, this clarity came into my heart. If I was good at something, I was very competitive. My whole life, I had to be the best, and I had to win. Now, here again, remember, is there something inherently bad about winning all the time? No. Is there something inherently bad about competition? No. It's just that if I'm trying to find what meaning from it for my life, then that's going to have limits. Eventually, it's going to betray me because I'm not going to win all the time, right? And then get this. uh, When I wasn't good at something, that's when I said I wasn't competitive, When I wasn't good at something, I was like, oh, I'm not competitive at all. I'm sharing this with a friend while we're eating wings right after this kind of burst upon my consciousness. And he goes, oh, that's called being a sore loser. That's it. (laughs) He put words to it. That's called being a sore. An idolatry in my life. One minute, I didn't even know it was there. The next, I did. And it's not that Jesus is taking away all of the desire in me to be good at things, right? It's that he loves me too much to let me find my meaning in winning. Are you tracking with me? He has to dismember that idolatry so that I find my identity in him. And at the end of all of this, where the idols betray us, friends, you know this, Jesus saves us. And I just want to point this out. No one was more free of idols than Jesus. Craig, if you could come play. No one was more free of idolatry than Jesus. He was perfectly unified with his father in worship and in his life. And look at the security that that put into his life. What this meant is that in the Roman world, where everyone was trying to one-up each other's God and goddess and shout louder, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What does Jesus do? He says nothing before his accusers. He lets himself become utterly vulnerable. And in his weakness, he defeats every false god that's ever existed. It's in, he's so strong that in going down, he tears apart every god that has set itself up against the one true god of heaven and earth. Isn't it amazing? And so you know what this means? This is the last thing I'm going to point out. I'm going to be done. It means that the early disciples did not fight idolatry by building bigger and better temples. And I point this out because I think this is a temptation for the church in which the day and the day in which we live is to try to get competitive with the gods and goddesses of our culture to be bigger and better and more attractive. I don't see anywhere Paul saying in Ephesus, oh, you know what we should do? Let's build an even bigger temple than Artemis has. Let's show them 
how beautiful our temple is. You know what they did in Ephesus that confronted the idolatry there? Watch this. They lived as free people. Day in and day out, they lived free of the shackles of their idolatry. Still enjoying good things, but not slave to it. Still in relationship with people, but not slaves to them. And the more that freedom grew in their lives, it actually began to undercut in a whole city, a major city of the Roman Empire. It began to to create shaky ground underneath the idolatry there. Our city has idolatries. Our region, our nation has its own idolatries. And maybe that's another sermon for another time. But we don't confront it by being louder or bigger or better. We confront it by living as free people. And the freer we are, our friends and neighbors who are still slaves to idols look at us and say, I want what you have. I want to be part of that. How do you love people like that and not care what they think? How do you serve people like that, whether you get thanked or not? How do you put yourself out there in weakness, serving other people? That, it's our freedom that people notice. It's our freedom that's attractive to people. And it's our freedom that Jesus bled and died for.